Welcome to Goodwill Hunters. Here, we'll explore the ultimate question, how to use profits for purpose. It's been said business must help solve the global challenges we face. In this podcast, we explore how. How can the private and not-for-profits work better together? What truly constitutes aid and progress? And how can we transform international development? Here, we talk with the thought leaders, the game changers, the intellectuals, and the campaigners. I'm your host, Rachel Mason-Nunn, and this is Goodwill Hunters. Hello and welcome to episode seven of Goodwill Hunters. Today on the show, we have Georgina Camp. Georgie is the CEO of Huber Social, an innovator bringing a fresh approach to solving complex social problems. Prior to this, Georgie worked as a management consultant, an army officer, an intern with the UN and a volunteer in communities all over the globe. Georgie holds a master's degree in development studies and an undergraduate degree in law and international relations. Georgie, I'm so excited to have you here today. You refer to yourself as an accidental entrepreneur. So could you start off by telling us what the accident was and how it led you to be the CEO of Huber Social? Uh, yes, certainly. So we didn't set out to start a business with Huber Social. We There's a core team of four of us and we all found each other at a management consulting firm. And what brought us together is we were very aligned on our values and wanted to be able to take what we did uh, with the private sector and kind of use it for good. Um, And that led us to, I guess, solve, see if we could solve a couple of problems that we had all experienced coming from our different backgrounds working in the social sector. And the main problem that we saw was that most organisations and projects are held to account on performance metrics that aren't all aligned to what they're actually trying to achieve. So they often tick in the box, yes, we've achieved that, and then go back to the work that really matters. So for us, um, our skill set was in systems thinking and thinking about measurement systems. And so we wanted to see if we could measure the work that really matters. Um, And that led us to develop our framework. But then we sat kind of with an ideology for a while. And it's like, oh, how do you make that practical? How do you actually put it in people's hands and connect it with the funding? And so that led us to actually have to set up Huber Social as a company and create products out of that. Um, But it was never the first intention to... We didn't set out to make a company to make a profit. So, Wow. That, I, I often hear this on the show and it's so inspiring where people sort of think they're on one path and then they see a need and they just answer it because you see what's lacking in the sector and you respond to it. And I definitely echo that idea that performance metrics are often just so redundant. They're not capturing what we're really what really matters in a project. So it's so inspiring the work that you're doing. So Huber Social responds to complex social problems. Could you tell us a bit about what you define as a complex social problem? 
And are our social problems getting more and more complex? Yes. Okay. So I guess all social problems are about people and um, people are complex. So we're not dealing with a bunch of uniformed robots. We're dealing with individuals that have unique needs. So for the social sector, the way that we've approached social issues um, has been more about focused on addressing the symptoms because that's often the stuff that's easier to measure. So um, days spent in hospital or um, uh, getting to court or um, ruse overhead. So that's all at the crisis point. Uh, but the way that Cuba Social thinks about um, defining social problems is we start with the needs of people and then we look at what is effective to address those needs of people. So if we were to borrow more akin to the health system, um, it's like if everyone that came to a doctor and said I had a headache and they were just given a Panadol, um, sometimes that is, that's good enough and that gets rid of the head headache. But other people, that headache's coming from um, long-standing, deep issues and they need a more tailored um, approach. So that's how we think about social issues. Um, so therefore, are they getting more complex? No, I think they've always probably been complex because you're dealing with people. Um, but encouragingly, I think we're at a great time where we've got at our fingertips, we've now got the technology, we're able to digest data and communicate it a lot more effectively that gives us the tools to be able to tackle these problems and give more individual solutions, I guess. Talk about there being people problems. And I think in development, we're starting to take this more holistic approach and recognising that there is a lot more to a person's well-being than simply measuring their level of household income or, or other indicators of wealth. And we know that well-being consists of a whole number of different factors. And many of those factors are really difficult to quantify. I know this is a topic that Huber Social is really passionate about, Georgie. So can you explain to us why it's so important that we connect the pursuit of well-being with the pursuit of wealth? Absolutely. Um, and there has been lots of movement in the sector to try and expand, I guess, frameworks and measures to be more holistic. The Human Development Index, even the SDGs, um, incorporate more than certainly things that just reduce poverty or focus on economic growth. But I think we still lack, beyond financial value, um, a universal way to measure social value. So, and, and we know that many important things in life, like relationships and safety and the environment and our access to a safe and just legal system, or even our own personal capabilities, are not reflected in financial value at all. And this has led to a society that is driven to create economic growth, but at the expense of those things on us, so our, on our social and our ecological and our mental and physical well-being. There's a lot of different views out there. There's data sets that say maybe the world is getting a better place, um, literacy is going up, life expectancy, but then other data sets, there's increase in suicide rates, obesity, mental health issues, loneliness are all kind of reaching epidemic levels. So overall, I'm kind of not convinced necessarily that the world's getting a better place. And we, there's definitely still room to improve the way that we measure social value. An analogy that I like to think of when we look at financial value and social value is for a long time we had the measure of latitude. 
And that was what set our course and we had to do our best to navigate direction based on latitude. And then as merchant shipping and everything increased and too many lives and cargo were getting lost on the rocks, it became not acceptable that we just couldn't crack how to measure longitude. Um, and they did it for thousands of years and it, it seemed like it was going to be impossible. And so much so that uh, looking for longitude was a cinnamon for looking or attempting the impossible. Um, but now we can't even imagine um, a, a world without it, like Google Maps, everything. So I think it's even though right now maybe an absolute measure of social value seems impossible, it's absolutely necessary and worthy because it's still un unacceptable, the state of the world. Beautiful analogy. I love that. You started off that by saying we lack a universal way to measure social value. Are, are there ways emerging? Is there a way that Huber Social uses? Yes, this is what we've been working on. Um, so I guess the way that Huber Social has sought to define social value is we look at three different elements um, or inputs to be able to create a universal metric. Um, and the three elements, and I'll go through each of how we think about them, but the first one is the contribution or the effect on somebody, on an individual or the community's well-being. The second element is the need, and third is the reach. So if we're looking at the social value of a service or um, of something, I guess, we first uh, start by looking at what's the impact on somebody's well-being. I guess, does it create a positive shift or not? So that gives us an idea of, I guess, how um, what that impact is. And then the second thing that you have to take into account is the need. So what something's worth to me is different to what is worth to you. So if we make that a bit more obvious, if you were to put like a hydroelectric power station in the middle of um, dry, arid Africa, that's not, that's the value of that's almost nil versus if you did it where water is an abundant source, it could be priceless. Um, another thing to think about the need is um, our most vulnerable in society and the way that Huber Social kind of defines that is the people with the lowest levels of well-being in the community have the highest need. So if you're assisting that or positively impacting those people's lives, that impact should be more highly valued. And then third, it's probably the most obvious, is um, the reach. So really just how many people does that impact? Again, this like an example of how this became quite real for me was I recently learnt how much some of my consulting colleagues were earning versus, say, the CEO of um, a charity, and it was about seven times the amount. And this is not any, this is not a reflection on the worth of them as individuals. But if you think about how much they're contributing to society, the value of that is totally not reflected in those salaries. It's probably the opposite. And so there's definitely space to be able to account for, one, yes, there's a financial value on that job or that service, but two, there's a social value that we should start accounting for and reward. These three ways of, of measuring social value, this method that you use, can you comment on how you came to this? Was it from your studies or was it from your work experience? What led you to develop that? 
Um, well, we do. We have a framework that measures well-being, shift in well-being, and then what's driving that. And that came about through working in the sector, but it also draws or leans back on a lot of academic literacy. But it, it kind of operationalizes that. So if we start with the framework, that um, it's an application of Amada Sen's capability development approach, um, which he talks about to summarize a very deep and rich um, theory, but that the goal as well as the means for all development is freedom. So when he's thinking about creating development, it's about addressing the unfreedoms or removing barriers for people to be in the best position to live a life of value. That's how we first created, I guess, the framework to quantify how much um, a service creates wellbeing. And then um, the need and reach really just came through. That's logical side to it so I've actually been doing a bit of work this week on the capabilities approach and how our traditional OECD model of development or the Washington consensus as it's known has really not taken capabilities into account enough and what we're seeing in these more contemporary approaches to development is a far greater emphasis on on capabilities okay so through this lens, you define value as being a combination of social value and financial value. Uh, well, we're focused on how can we quantify social value. So I think there's different types of value, but um, the one that humanity is missing is social value. So mm, Definitely. So we had Caitlin Barrett on the show in episode five, and she talked to us about your work with her in Uganda for Love Mercy, which was so interesting. So I would love it if you could tell us a bit about that and how you measured the impact of the Sense for Seeds program. Love Mercy, I guess I'll just quickly summarise what that program's about. So it's a micro agricultural loan program and they work with women in northern Uganda where they give out a loan of 30 kilos of seeds and they also deliver the agricultural workshops and the financial literacy um, program around that. So the women have the skills to make the most of that loan. Um, and Love Mercy this year reached 13,800 women throughout northern Uganda, which is incredible. Um, and Caitlin and I connected. Well, she came to us really because for a long time she's been working, she's founded that nine years ago. And she wanted to really be able to, one, make sure that the program was having the impact on the lives of the women that they really wanted to. And she wanted to be able to quantify that full impact. So when you talk to the women on the ground and you talk to Love Mercy team and you say, okay, so how do you know the program's working? There's one, there's the crops in the field um, are bountiful and they're able to earn an income. But so much of that impact is more about the community connection, the women actually taking more pride in themselves, looking, in their own words, looking better. They were like, we're more attractive now. Um, and that sense of, in our language, empowerment. So Caitlin really wanted to be able to measure that. And... Uh, our framework offered that. So it was really exciting to go and put that into practice. So how we did that 
Um, there's four ways that we collect data against our framework, and that's obviously being on the ground and doing direct observation, um, research and data mining other sources, so looking at the census data or any data they may have already collected, um, focus group interviews, and then finally, surveys. So that was um, what we, we trialled it back in November, and then we went in February, and we actually... Um, surveyed uh, 1,200 women and about their well-being and then um, where their levels of capabilities and levels of access to opportunities were to understand what was driving that. Um, and it was, I mean, all hats off to Caitlin because that's quite daunting for a CEO to open up to an independent um, measure, I guess, to make sure that they're having the, the right impact. But the results came back and they're so exciting. So what we were able to show that um, the two factors that were driving well-being the most, number one was time spent in program. So that tells you that the program works, which is phenomenal. Um, but the numbers were, say, out of a score of five for well-being, for the women that weren't in the program, they were scoring an average of 2.92. And then that um, increased consistently over the years that they stayed in the program up to about year five and six, where it starts to plateau at, I think it was about 4.3. So it's a really significant shift in wellbeing. And that information was very useful because Love Mercy is starting to think, where does kind of the impact of what they do um, when does that run its course for those women? Should they be thinking about graduating those women at a certain point or should they be offering more um, in addition to the services they have? So that year five and six was um, started to inform that, but that might be where they expand the program. And then the second highest correlating factor was access to water. And that might not sound so groundbreaking because um, obviously in Africa and in rural villages, access to water is an issue and it's so fundamental. But this is also against uh, things like if they're widowed, if they were disabled, how hungry they were, how many children they had. And for access to water to come out um, as such a high correlating factor, it's really useful for Love Mercy. And we are actually able to deliver that the results to their major donor and that informed their decision to then be able to fund drilling wells um, in, in more of the communities. But also uh, Love Mercy had just partnered with Water for Africa. So it was um, a great validation of that partnership to be able to maximise the impact. And, and it was really cool, the major donor of the charity then turned to me and said, what was the third, fourth and fifth highest correlating factor? Is that something I can pay for too? So really exciting results and great to see that response for Love Mercy. They are such exciting results. And Caitlin and I were saying, when you do something like this, there must always be a little part of you that's nervous that you know the project isn't as worthwhile as you thought it was. But in this instance, I think this would have exceeded Caitlin's and your expectations of, of what an incredibly impactful project it is. You talked about using surveys and focus groups. Can you comment on how you ensure that people can participate meaningfully in those? 
um, especially women who might be illiterate? How, how do we ensure that we're hearing their voices as well? Yeah, absolutely. That was a huge consideration because a lot of the women in these communities hadn't ever held, held a pencil before. So even that was had a lot of impact and they felt quite powerful to be able to and quite nervous to make a mark on the paper. So uh, this part of the, I guess, mitigations or the, the way that we set that up for success and for rigour, the trip that I did earlier, oh, sorry, late last year in November was about making sure that the team on the ground really appreciated what we were doing the measurement for because we were relying on them to be able to do the translation true to what the intent of the questions that we were asking. Um, and so there's a whole process we go through to make sure of that. But a key to that is when we, once they've got an understanding of what the survey's about, we then work through every question and make sure that's translated true to what it needs to mean. And so that, the process of that is just asking them if they can explain back in their words what they think that question is. And that gives me confidence every time that they're able to communicate the question truthfully to the ladies on the ground. Um, and we were really fortunate. We had about a team of about 10 people from the villages that we also trained in February to then help um, us actually conduct the surveys. So they were in amongst the groups of women um, and then and we, it was all done as a big group and it was kind of controlled so that nobody was left out um, and uh, everyone kept up and everyone understood what we were doing. So it, it was a pretty amazing process. Changing tack a little bit here, there's a statement on your website based on The Economist, an article from The Economist, that economists typically focus too little on the things that people truly care about. So economists focus on money, but what people truly care about is well-being. We've touched on the importance of, of social value already. Can you comment a bit more on what it would take for economists to see the value in doing this and in making this shift? Yes, certainly. I, it is hard because we lack that universal way to measure social value and economists are all about financial value. They're always looking at um, what's driving, I guess, the bottom line and there isn't a way to account for um, the ecological or the social impact of something or the, or, or the social and ecological value of something. So what we've seen then is we see this get taken offshore or we're mainstream people are buying food that it's cheaper to bring food from overseas than it is from our local community. But what's not factored into that price is what... What does that cost us in terms of society? Um, and so it would be great to be able to complement the financial value system and give the tools for economists to be able to equate for that impact or that social value alongside the financial value. Otherwise, we'll just keep driving for economic growth. And we're seeing it 
we're seeing a push towards quantifying things that typically haven't had a financial value. Things like clean air, clean water, healthy soil to grow vegetables in, all that sort of thing. And I know that there is a growing subsection of economics that is focused on quantifying things like that. I think, mm. you know, carbon emissions trading and that sort of thing is is a, a pillar of that. Do you think it's important that we be able to put a financial value on social value? So you talked about the women in Uganda say we, we look better and we feel better and, you know, our lives are valuable. Is there a way to place a financial value on that? Ooh, I'm not sure if I'm comfortable with the idea of having to measure in terms of a financial value. But I think there needs to be a metric that measures that. So in a way to account for that. Um and the benefits of that uh, are huge if, because, one, you can then give that a lot of utility. So for an organisation like Love Mercy that's contributing a lot of social value to the world and to a community, they then, if they're able to account for that in a certain way, then they're able to, should be able to enjoy rewards for that. So, say maybe they pay less tax or, or they're not for profits, so they don't anyway. But if we were to um, think of another example, if we're able to account for the social value that organisations create in a metric, that allows us to um, consider that when we're making our choices. So I think I think that's what everyone's looking for now. It, people want to know that they're working for a company that creates positive impact. They people more and more people want to invest where it's ethical. Um, but we really still lack that tool to be able to look at those make those decisions um, in an informed way. Uh, we There might be reports, but a lot of them are kind of very fluffy. Um, and a lot of the frameworks are just ticks in the boxes. So, yeah, I think we still have a long way to go with that. I agree with you. To, to go back to the point you made at first there, I'm not comfortable with that either. And it's often really hard to articulate why. In your view, what are the dangers of trying to put a financial value on social impact kind of devalues it in a way it, it just then will contribute to the financial system um, and it also can incentivize people to game it uh, they're not driven I guess it it shouldn't have to be quantified in terms of a financial dollar yeah I think it's more about that we don't we should we're trying to move away from just thinking about economic value and um, recognition that there's a lot of other things in life that are important. So, um, yeah, kind of hard to think of all the reasons that that could create a negative impact. But, yeah, I think. Yeah, no, well said. I, I understand what you mean. When we're trying to move away from putting a financial value on everything, it defeats the purpose if, if all of our social values are, are quantified in financial terms. Things should be valuable simply because they intrinsically are. To move along a little bit, you made a submission to Treasury in 2017 on the topic of social impact investment. Can you tell us about the social impact investing market? It's an area I know so little about and how the private and public sectors can partner together on this topic. I think it's it's really exciting and hugely rapidly growing field. 
um, exciting because it is opening alternative sources of funding up to solve complex social issues. And I think there's a few reasons that it's held back from um, having the positive impact that the hype around impact investing um, talks about. So one, the mechanisms, so the funds or social benefit bonds are all very cumbersome to set up. So they still really only make that funding available to large organize, large social enterprises or large not-for-profits. Um, th- th- that's getting better with kind of collective impact bonds and things, but um, because they are so cumbersome to set up, and that's usually comes down to the measurement that every time, for every um, mandate of that bond or of that fund, they need to think about how they're going to measure that, and then that relies heavily on what data sets are available. So that also holds back what can be included or accessible to the impact investing market. But I think there's lots of great examples that are probably contrary to what I've just said. So the Global Impact Initiative, that's a big impact investment fund and they've just launched um, a fund for women's and girls' empowerment they are open to very small social enterprises that they connect with organisations that are able to build the capacity of those enterprises so that they can scale up. So um, that's a fantastic example of how that's um, connecting funding with these smaller organisations and overcoming um, the limit of uh, only being available to the big organisations. Then the public and private other great examples are, I would say, Adara Development and Ascent Foundation that we've been working with, and they're funded by the profits of financial services and their investment partners. So I found these sorts of organisations, um, they have an appetite for measuring well-being beyond financial value, and that's really because the funding is coming is self-generated. They're not relying on... Um, government metrics or they're they're not held to ransom by government and other more traditional approaches that just want to see the dollar value of the program um, or the administrative costs as the dominant measure. So I think it's a really exciting field that just keeps getting better and better. So in a nutshell, impact investment is about aligning profits with social impact. No, definitely. It's about um, being able to make money whilst also do good. Yeah, that no, that makes a lot of sense. And we we talked a few weeks ago on the show about the the response to tuberculosis in Port Moresby at the moment, and how the a lot of the not for profit sector and the traditional aid donors just weren't putting in the money that was required. But a lot of the private sector organisations in Port Moresby realised that it was really in their interest to have employees that didn't have tuberculosis. So they invested in the tuberculosis response. So it, it was a positive social impact, but it also was in the interests of profits for those companies. I'm not That's not social impact investment in the traditional sense, but I think there is a growing wave of businesses that recognise that many of these areas of social impact are in their best interest financially as well. Yeah. 
Yes, absolutely. That's kind of, I've been calling that the next generation corporate social responsibility, where companies are recognising that they can connect social outcomes with their strategic business outcomes, and through fulfilling the social outcomes, they're actually driving their business outcomes. I mean, organisations like Unilever and Patagonia are amazing examples of that. Um, but even less obvious ones, uh, Tata Consulting Services, uh, they run programs to connect girls that are held back from careers in STEM and remove those barriers because they actually have a gap in, they need more and more people with those skill sets. So by going into communities where there's underprivileged girls and giving them the opportunity to actually um, consider a career in STEM, for those that follow through, they actually feel their the business need to find people with these skill sets. So that's a really nice example too of how social outcomes can drive business outcomes. Yeah, yeah, there's these really inspiring companies leading the way. It's it's fantastic to see. That sort of is a good segue into something else I wanted to ask you. I most of your clients are from the not-for-profit sector. Would I be right in saying that? Yes. And is there is there interest in working with the private sector, so using your social value metric with private sector organisations, or is that not the area that you're in at the moment? No, absolutely. So we've been having lots of conversations with private sector organisations, and they see the application of what we're doing for various reasons. So certainly a lot, a bit like the Port Moresby example, recognise that if their employees are in the better position of wellbeing, that then they're able to be more engaged, more productive, um, and create better customer service. So measuring a lot of the wellbeing programs that a lot of corporates have now and highly invest in and whether they're actually working is an application um, of our framework. Also, encouragingly, we're talking with a lot of schools um, and, and, and government departments in the education sector who are really investigating how we can bring in more holistic measures of student success. So again, we've only ever had really academic success to measure schools against. So being able to put complementary measures around people's of students' wellbeing is really exciting, but that appetite's there. And I think insurance companies are a great example of uh, investing a lot in people's wellbeing but not being recognised for it. So they have a business model that's all about the more their clients are in a position of wellbeing, um, the more successful they are as a company. So that's another application of actually being able to measure the wellbeing of clients as well and making sure that they're, through all their add-on services, um, they are actually putting their clients in that position. That school's example is especially exciting. It's so desperately needed in our school system, isn't it, to, to start valuing more than just marks. And, I mean, I think universities have been doing a bit of this. Some universities, I remember, recognise extracurricular achievements outside of just your, your final mark. But being able to do that within schools and, and recognise the well-being of students as an important factor in their education is so important. The next thing I wanted to ask you, 
very broadly, it's a question I ask a lot of our guests. What are we getting right in international development? And what are we getting wrong? And what do we need to fix? Okay, well, I can obviously only speak on what I've experienced, um, but it does appear to be a shared experience amongst friends and colleagues. And and it's really where we started and why we set up Pubis Social was that so much of the work that people do in this sector hasn't been able to be measured. And it's just been accepted that you can't measure the work that really matters, that you can't measure that the program's increasing people's participation in society, uh, that it's making them feel more confident about themselves. Um, and so, and that, you, that we just have to keep putting the ticks in the boxes. Um, and so not being able to measure, I guess, the work that really matters is is the problem that we're trying to solve. Um, and for us, that was hugely important when we started testing what the framework that we de developed, that it was going to be supporting the work of social workers and people in the field. And the response has been so far, yes, and kind of finally. So that's huge validation for me because I think the day that it becomes just another tick in the box exercise um, would be a day that we uh, have to look at ourselves and um, and think about what we've created. But so far, um, being able to support social workers and people in the field to really put empirical evidence behind what they know is working is um, has been our focus to to help create change for the sector. I totally agree with that. So the question I want to finish on a little bit of blue sky. 10 years from now, what does success look like for you? I'm always overly ambitious with these questions, what can be achieved in 10 years. Um, I think it would be fantastic if we're actually measuring the well-being of people all around the world and understanding what's driving that and what are the priority of needs and that that's communicated in a way that can inform decisions at all levels. And so one that we can actually see resources directed effectively to where they need to be. So we see complex social problems being solved and, and resources are then being released to actually humanity as opposed to just sustain it. And, and I, I have this vision of what that might look like. So I was recently standing in a, uh, a trader's room. So with all the financial markets around the world going up and down and seeing how responsive they were and how closely they were studying these financial markets. I thought, wouldn't that be amazing to have the same but for social value? And so we see these dips and, oh, what happened there? Oh, you know, a government just put these sanctions on there. So oh, quick, you know, how are we going to redirect resources? So if we could achieve that in 10 years, I'd be, <laughs> I think that would be amazing. Um, and, and, yeah, I guess that would then incentivise people in a way to um, meet our most needy. We wouldn't have these black holes around the world where people are really vulnerable and, and people are being left behind. And so, yeah, in summary, we're all a little bit closer, if not already, in a position for ourselves to create our own wellbeing. What a great vision. I'm picturing that that stock exchange room for social value now and it just sounds fantastic. I saw a great quote the other day and it said people overestimate what they can do in one year and underestimate what they can do in 10 years. 
Thank you so much for being on the show today. This has been such an interesting discussion and such an important discussion uh, that really anyone working in development needs to be having these thoughts and asking the questions that you're asking. So thank you so much for all of the work that you do. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Isn't Georgie wonderful? I absolutely loved hearing about the work that Huber Social is doing and reading their website and reading about some of their incredible projects. And I would highly encourage you to do the same. They are a truly incredible organization doing wonderful, innovative work. I just wanted to take a moment to thank you all so much for tuning in to the last seven episodes. I've been so thrilled with the guests that we've had on the show and equally thrilled with your reaction. As always, I love hearing your feedback. So please let me know what you thought of today's episode and any of our other episodes and tune in next week for a great discussion with Andrea D. Almeida, the CEO of B-Lab Australia. 